This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 64. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, proving unavailability in order to use depositions at hearing or at trial. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking in. I hope you've had a good week so far. If you're a regular listener, you know I've been practicing for about 35 years in multiple states with an extraordinarily heavy civil trial practice the entire time. Because of that volume, I've now taken more than 20,000 depositions. As you know, my goal here is to share insights, strategies, and practice tips that you can immediately implement in your litigation practice. There's lots of advice out there about depositions, most of it wrong or outdated. So one of my goals is to combat the bad information that has flooded the internet. I saw a brief video the other day from a lawyer who said his advice to his clients in getting them ready for deposition was threefold. Tell the truth, don't guess, keep your answers short. Let me talk about that for a second. Tell the truth, well, good enough. That's obviously sound advice. Don't guess. Well, if that's all you say on that topic, you might actually wind up confusing your client. Of course, we don't want our clients simply making up answers out of nowhere, but there's a lot more guessing in a deposition than you might think. Rather than guessing, though, we call it inferences, beliefs, opinions, estimates, approximations, conclusions, educated judgments. If I just tell my client not to guess, he or she's likely to interpret that to mean that they may only testify to literal facts. Let's use the classic example that judges sometimes give to juries. The jury may say, judge, how can we draw conclusions about this? We weren't there. The judge will say, use your common sense. For example, imagine that a man in a raincoat shows up at your door and both he and his raincoat and his umbrella are soaking wet. What's happening outside? Now, who's going to pause for more than a second before answering, it's raining? But a client who's been told generically not to guess without proper preparation and explanation might think, well, I can't say it's raining outside because no one's admitted that to me. Therefore, I can't know it was raining and I can't say so because I haven't been outside and I haven't seen the rain. And so to extrapolate, I can't speak of beliefs, opinions, conclusions, or anything else that requires me to connect raw facts to a conclusion, to make reasonable assumptions based on a collection of facts. So lawyers that give this kind of advice can really hamstring their client. It's the kind of advice that lawyers will give if their idea of preparing a client is to meet in the parking lot of the court reporter's office 10 minutes before the deposition starts. The jury instructions in the federal circuits where I practice, the pattern instructions approved by the federal appellate courts, of course, specifically tell juries that circumstantial evidence, the kind of evidence that points to a conclusion that the jury has to draw when the evidence is connected together is just as good as direct evidence. But circumstantial evidence, as I say, requires the drawing of conclusions and inferences. So lawyers that tell their clients not to guess might really be confusing the client as to exactly what that means. All right, the third and final piece of advice that this lawyer said in his video that he gives his clients to get them ready for depositions was keep your answers short. Again, great parking lot advice if you've not done another thing, but really a terrible way again to prepare the client. What if the question is, tell me what happened? Tell me how the accident happened. Tell me what everyone said in the meeting. So generic advice like this is not useful to our clients if we don't explain what we actually mean and conduct a mock examination to give the client a chance 
to work through the kinks in their testimony. What that lawyer probably meant was, of course, give short answers to short questions, medium answers to medium questions, and so on, but always respond to the question. Your answer should match the question asked and fully answer the question completely. But if we don't explain that to the client, they're going to go with the default advice we gave, whatever it was and however incomplete it was. So we get past that kind of very short-sighted thinking in this podcast and in the books and in my courses and seminars so that we can do a world-class job of getting our clients ready. Your clients deserve world-class efforts and you are fully capable of giving them that. Depositions are where cases are won or lost. As I've said many times, depositions are the new trial. Precious few lawsuits ever wind up inside a courtroom before a judge and jury. So you win or you lose your cases in depositions. All right, let's turn to the topic today, which is proving unavailability in order to be able to use deposition testimony in lieu of a live witness in a trial or evidentiary hearing. So suppose a trial or key hearing is approaching. I'll use trial for purposes of our discussion today, but it applies equally to evidentiary hearings. So suppose a trial is approaching and you learn one of the witnesses that you plan to call live isn't available now. Fair enough. So now you need to use their deposition in lieu of their live appearance. That means that you've got to prove that the witness is unavailable under the rules. How do you do it? How far in advance of trial do you have to do it? Do you need an affidavit? Can you just tell the judge that last you heard Peter, Paul, and Mary were leaving on a jet plane and you don't know when they'll be back again, so you're just going to read the deposition? Thank you, judge. That's kind of the scenario in one of the cases in the show notes today. That's the Fishman case you may want to take a look at. Well, witness unavailability is something that many litigators rarely think about in advance, but always should. As you're drawing up your universe of potential witnesses early in your case at the start of the discovery period, ask yourself, which of these folks will for sure be available at trial? On the other hand, which of them have something going on by way of their career, their place of residence, the frequency with which they move around, something going on that tells you that that deponent might not be available to testify at trial? And which of the witnesses, the potential deponents, will for sure be unavailable by the time of trial. Those could be witnesses that are already of very advanced age and in extremely poor health. It could be witnesses that you know live beyond the subpoena power in your case and will definitely not agree to come back. It could be witnesses in a line of work that require them to relocate frequently, specialized employees in worldwide companies, active duty members of the military, people nearing retirement who are plan on moving elsewhere, or it could be deponents who have told you that they have something scheduled that conflicts with the trial date, like pre-planned vacations or other important life commitments. I see lawyers who first stumble into the likelihood of an unavailable witness within days or weeks of the start of a trial. And if that applies to you, that can make for a bit of a mess in your trial prep. It's going to mean some very hurried, very rushed last minute planning scrambling to take a second deposition of the witness, specifically in the nature of a trial examination, sometimes called a de bene essay deposition, loosely meaning in anticipation of a future event, specifically trial in this situation. It could mean that you're gonna to have to scramble now to track down the witness, to subpoena them if they're within the subpoena power of the court. 
It could mean you're going to have to scramble if you can't reach the witness to designate coherent chunks of their deposition testimony. And it could also mean that you're going to have to seek a postponement of the trial. So my recommendation to you as a litigator is that you include actual or potential witness unavailability as part of your standard deposition program checklist. You should always be thinking about who will be available for trial, who won't be, and who we can't be sure of. That's really critical. If you know a witness with high certainty will be available, you may decide against asking certain specific questions in deposition because you're gonna to wanna to hit them with your best cross-examination at trial. If you know a witness will not be available, you're more likely to include the critical questions. You may not get a second crack at a witness in those situations where a judge allows you to use a deposition transcript but is not going to allow you to redepose the witness for a specific trial style examination. If that's the situation, if you didn't do that in your deposition, you didn't think ahead, then whatever you asked in your discovery deposition is all you're going to be able to work from in presenting chunks of that testimony to the jury. If you didn't think about the witness's unavailability as you planned for and conducted the deposition, the stuff you need from that witness to present to the jury is not likely to be in that transcript. Now, if you did give some forethought to whether the witness would be available or not, you're more likely to ask the questions or to avoid the questions that work best for you if the deposition is going to be played at trial. And you'll be more careful about how you phrase the questions to ensure that they're not objectionable and thus rendered unusable in a courtroom because the rules that allow you to use a deposition in lieu of live testimony require that the testimony be otherwise admissible. So this is an analytical process you've got to go through as you're mapping out your discovery program and in particular your deposition plan. And you've got to talk to your trial team and figure out who's going to be available, who isn't, and who do we not know for sure and conduct your examinations accordingly. As for witnesses that are likely to be called by the opposition that you may need to cross-examine at trial, you need to run through a similar analysis. Which of those folks are you counting on questioning during the opponent's case? Which of those witnesses will be available, won't be available, or may or may not be available? Which of the opposing witnesses have you subpoenaed to ensure that they will be around if you need them live? Which of the opposing witnesses has your adversary promised to you they would produce live at trial such that you don't need to subpoena them? And regarding whom, you're trusting your opponent to present. Trusting your opponent to bring witnesses, even their witnesses, that might benefit you, is that a good idea? If you think it is, check out the Phoenix Technologies case in the show notes. I'll talk about that a little bit later. And by the way, we've got 17 cases in the show notes for this episode, which will provide you an absolutely unbelievable head start on your research when this issue pops up for you. Now, the place where you get our podcast may or may not contain our complete show notes. So sometimes you may see a clipped or incomplete list of the authorities that we've actually included for the episode in the show notes. If you look at the list wherever you get your podcast and it doesn't look complete, check the link that says go to podcast uh, homepage or episode page because our home website will contain the complete list. But check out the Phoenix Technologies case if you'd like to see what happens when one party relies on repeated express promises by an adversary that they're going to call a witness live. It is definitely a cautionary tale.
All right, so let's suppose you've learned that a witness won't be available at trial. Is this really a big thing? The case law tells us that judges treat the notion of unavailability differently. Some judges are very loose about it. In one case in the show notes, that's the Fishman case, a lawyer apparently learned about the unavailability of a key witness during trial the day before the witness was going to be called into the courtroom. So the lawyer stands before the judge, tells the judge that the guy has flown out of town and isn't available. So he'd like to present the deposition testimony instead. And on that unsworn representation without any additional proof, the judge allowed it. And that decision was affirmed on appeal. The lawyer who made the representation of unavailability had no other facts before the court other than what he was saying. And the court didn't even place the lawyer under oath. The appeals court said, well, the showing made in that case that the witness had departed and was now in Philadelphia at the time that the deposition was proffered was adequate to establish the usability of the deposition under the rule. And so the judge was eminently correct in exercising his discretion at trial to allow the deposition. The appeals court also said if the same facts had been shown by a sworn witness, it would appear that the right to use the deposition would not have even been questioned. So that ruling allowed the use of the deposition literally based on the unsworn representation of the lawyer alone. Now compare the ruling in Fishman to the ruling in the Forbes decision in the show notes where the lawyers were caught off guard at the last minute about a witness's unavailability and were doing everything they could to try to establish that the witness wasn't available, specifically an inmate that had been released and literally disappeared into the mist. In that case, the trial judge relied on what seemed to me like relatively modest technical and procedural deficiencies in the proof presented by the plaintiffs about the witness's unavailability to justify the court's ruling, refusing to allow the plaintiff in that case to use the deposition uh, of a witness who in fact, in that case, appeared to be completely unavailable and unreachable. So the Fishman and the Forbes cases together tell us that the outcome of the unavailability issue can depend heavily on who your decision maker is. Also, uh, to reinforce this point, compare the Holen, H-O-L-E-N case, where a judge allowed the plaintiff to use videotaped depositions of treating physicians under the exceptional circumstance provision of the unavailability rule, saying that to force the plaintiff to bring these doctors live into the courtroom would cost the plaintiff tens of thousands of dollars, whereas the plaintiff could take videotaped depositions of the physicians and entirely avoid that expense. So the judge in the Holen case said, that's an exceptional circumstance under the unavailability rule and I'll allow the use of the depositions. Now compare the Holen decision, the one I just discussed, with the White case, W-H-Y-T-E, where another judge in a different jurisdiction denied the use of videotaped treating physician testimony on the exact same ground, finding that the exorbitant cost of bringing doctors to trial live wasn't an exceptional circumstance, the exact opposite holding. So again, unavailability may be in the eye of the beholder, specifically your trial judge. But if a witness is truly unavailable as defined by the rule and you can't meet that rule's standard of proof, you're not going to be able to use the deposition testimony. You'll have nothing. So I repeat, you've got to have this unavailability analysis as one of the items on your checklist as you develop your deposition plan. And it's probably rare that you can't at least sense to some extent 
which witnesses will be there in person and which may not be. Now, as I've said many times in the podcast, I work chiefly from the federal rules of civil procedure for the most part because they are uniform across the entire federal system, but just as importantly because those federal rules of civil procedure have been approved in a supermajority of states. I think at last count, 35 states, plus or minus, had adopted the federal rules in whole or in part, with the remaining states having borrowed enough bits and pieces that in many situations, the state court rules look very much like those uh, adopted by the federal courts. So on the issue of unavailability, you're going to want to look at a few different rules. The chief rule on unavailability pertaining to the use of depositions at trial is Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 32A4. All right. You're also going to need to take a look at Federal Rule of Evidence 804 or your jurisdiction's equivalent because that rule regarding the unavailability of a declarant operates independent of Rule 32, has its own definitions, but also allows the use of depositions at trial if you can establish unavailability. You're also going to want to look at Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 45, the subpoena rule, so that you know the limits and extent of your ability to subpoena witnesses for trial, because obviously that's going to bear on whether or not a witness is truly unavailable or whether you could have properly subpoenaed them. Next, you're going, and I hope this doesn't make your eyes spin in their sockets, but I'm walking you through the critical rules that you're going to need to take a look at. <clears throat> you're also going to want to take a look at Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 43A, which allows testimony remotely for good cause and in compelling circumstances, because under one of the depositions of unavailability in Rule 32A4, you're going to have to prove that the witness cannot attend or testify, either or. So in at least one circumstance, you would have to be able to prove that the witness can't even testify remotely by video. Finally, you will want to make sure that you understand and know about any exceptions that may affect your case. For example, in one case in the show notes, the Berkeley Heart Labs case, the proponent of using a deposition in lieu of live testimony told the judge that the witnesses were clearly beyond the 100 mile subpoena power of the court. The court in that case uh, pointed out to the lawyer that under the law at issue, which was the False Claims Act, there was actually nationwide subpoena power. Motion denied. All right, let's talk uh, quickly about the five grounds under Federal Rule 32A4. That rule is titled Using Depositions in Court Proceedings. Subsection 4, titled Unavailable Witness, says a party may use for any purpose the deposition of a witness, whether or not a party, if the court finds any of the following. There are five grounds in that section and they are all independent of each other. You don't have to prove more than one. Subsection A says that you can use the deposition if the court finds the witness is dead. The question here to ask is, how will you prove that? Certified death certificate? Affidavit from a spouse or family member? Other papers filed in some court proceeding presented to your judge in a competent evidentiary form? Subsection B says you can use the deposition in lieu of live testimony on grounds of unavailability if the witness is more than 100 miles from the place of hearing or trial or is outside the United States unless it appears that the witness's absence was procured by the party offering the deposition. So if you can show that the witness is more than 100 miles from the hearing or trial at the time that the witness would be called to testify, 
That is sufficient on its own. The only qualification to that is that you can't be the party that caused the witness to be absent and outside the subpoena power of the court. So what would suffice here? Deposition testimony from the witness. If you had a chance to ask the witness for their home address or where they would be at the time of trial. Other documents showing the current home address, work address, whatever. Or information showing the witness is traveling. And that could also be an affidavit from the witness if you can get one. It doesn't just have to be something that you asked in their deposition. Subsection C says that you can establish unavailability if you can convince the court that the witness cannot attend or testify because of age, illness, infirmity, or imprisonment. Let's walk through that again. Under this subsection, you have to show both that the witness cannot attend in person and cannot testify remotely. Those are two different requirements. Now, depending on your judge, you may or may not have trouble if you are relying solely on the witness's age. That's a freestanding element in that subsection. But I suspect that the inclusion of age by itself as a factor is probably a holdover from years gone by when the drafters may have stereotyped people above a certain age as being unable to attend or testify by virtue of their age alone. I don't think that will fly these days. I don't think you can come in and say that just because someone is 80 that they can't attend and they can't testify. I doubt that a judge will buy that argument on its own. The other conditions, as I said, are illness, infirmity, or imprisonment. If you can establish any of those grounds, it doesn't matter then how far away from the courthouse the witness is. They could be two blocks from the courthouse. But if you have sufficient evidence that because of their physical condition, their age, or because they are imprisoned, that they cannot attend or testify, you've met that subsection. Subsection D says that you can use the deposition in lieu of live testimony if the court finds that you could not procure the witness's attendance by subpoena. So if you have a witness, for example, who is evading service, can't be found at their known work or home addresses, or if they can be found, they can't be properly served because they're refusing to come to the door or even acknowledge that they are in the building. Now, what would you need to satisfy the unavailability showing under this exception? Well, in the Dweck DWEK case in the show notes, a process server provided an affidavit to the court showing that he had attempted on six different occasions to serve the witness. The process server also swore under oath that the person who was evading service had apparently contacted a lawyer about the attempts at service and whose lawyer then contacted the process server to ask questions about it. So in that situation, it really couldn't have been any clearer that the person was avoiding service, deposition admitted. Subsection E of 32A4 is a catch-all provision that says if you can show exceptional circumstances that make it desirable in the interest of justice and with due regard to the importance of live testimony to permit the deposition to be used, then you might satisfy this provision. Now remember, this provision is in the context of the rule on unavailability. So it's got to be exceptional circumstances relating to the witness's actual or alleged unavailability. There's no definition of exceptional circumstances, but the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said in the Algiers case in the show notes that the exceptional circumstance you come up with under this provision should at least be as exceptional as the circumstances in the first four categories, death, extreme distance, severe infirmity, imprisonment, illness, or age. 
One court was presented uh, the argument that appearing live would disrupt a physician's medical practice. Court said, not exceptional. Another court was presented the argument, well, the witness is a parent. Court said, not exceptional. In another situation, there was evidence that a key witness was going to give birth three days before the trial. Judge says, not exceptional, because absent a greater showing, the witness can probably testify remotely. That's the Martinez case in the show notes. So if you face objections on your effort to use a deposition because of unavailability, and you don't fit within subsections A through D, you had probably better come up with something pretty compelling to fit this catch-all provision. All right, now, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you should also take a look at Federal Rule of Evidence 804. That's titled, Exceptions to the Rule Against Hearsay When the Declarant is Unavailable as a Witness. That's another rule, independent of Rule 32, that allows you to introduce deposition testimony if you can prove the criteria in that rule relating to unavailability. Some of the provisions in Rule of Evidence 804 are similar to those in Rule of Procedure 32. Some are different. There is a considerable degree of overlap, and some of the cases we've cited in the show notes compare and contrast the differences. All right, let's talk about some practice pointers, and then we can wrap up. Um, some basics first. This rule was written before the 2020 pandemic. The evolving case law since the start of the pandemic suggests to me that some courts, at least, will be more liberal in applying the unavailability provisions. But that said, and as some of the cases I've discussed make clear, the decision whether you have made a proper showing of unavailability lies in the sound discretion of the trial judge. Seemingly, for every case that says a particular factual scenario will meet the test of unavailability, there's another that says the scenario does not meet that test. So don't count on a court to cut you a break just because the witness is critical. Another basic point, if you're in a situation where an opposing party has promised to you to produce a witness at trial that you will likely need without a subpoena, be mindful of the possibility that circumstances may change at the last minute and that the opposing party may then inform you they can no longer produce the witness. It could be a current employee of the opponent that has just been fired and so is no longer under their control. Or it could be someone that was friendly to them and is now at odds with them and no longer cooperating. Relying on an opponent to help with your trial presentation through the production of witnesses means that you've given your opponent control of at least part of your trial case. And that, to say the least, is risky business. If you need witnesses to appear live and they are within the subpoena power of the court, serve them. Don't rely on opponents. They owe you no obligation whatsoever. Definitely check out the Phoenix Technologies case in the show notes. That's the case where defense counsel had apparently repeatedly represented to the plaintiff that it would be calling one of the plaintiff's former employees live at trial. No problem. But after the start of the trial, defense counsel, according to the opinion, told the witness directly, who was now in town in a hotel just a few blocks from the courthouse, that she would not be called to testify and that she could either enjoy her hotel room or she could leave. The witness apparently checked out of the hotel and then left for home 130 miles away. At that point, once she arrived home, she met the technical requirements of unavailability and so the defense immediately asked to use her video deposition in its case in chief 
which the court then allowed because the witness was now unavailable. The opinion makes clear that the defense lawyers did not tell the witness she should leave the city, only that she could. So at least as the court saw it, they did not procure the witness's absence. They didn't tell her to avoid the courthouse. They didn't tell her she had to go home. They didn't tell her that she had to avoid communications with opposing lawyers. So the court said, there is just no evidence that they quote unquote procured her absence as that term is used in the rule. Now, if that behavior leaves you a little uncomfortable, it appears from the decision that the court felt the same way. In the opinion, the court expressed significant reservations about the what it called the defense tactics in telling the witness that she would not be called and thus allowing her to leave. But the court says the fact remains, the witness is now unavailable. The court also cited some case authority, and I've got that in the show notes, for the proposition that under the case law interpreting Rule 32, procuring absence and doing nothing to facilitate presence are two different things. So here the court found that the defense did nothing to facilitate continued presence, but did not technically procure or cause her absence. All right. If you're seeking to use a deposition based on unavailability, here are some specific practice tips uh, I've put together for you. Number one, again, be on the lookout throughout your deposition process in your case for witnesses whose circumstances or testimony suggest they're not going to be available. Don't just let this thing creep up on you from behind. Get out in front of it. Most of the time, you're going to know, if you're consciously thinking about it, who's going to be there in person and who may slip away from you. And that, in turn, will affect and determine how you conduct your deposition examination since it may be read at trial. Next point, read the five criteria for unavailability under a federal rule of civil procedure 32A4 very carefully. That's your first stop in the analysis. There are five separate grounds there. You need to only satisfy one of them on unavailability and you're good to go. The easiest showings are obviously by establishing the witness's death or distance of more than 100 miles from the hearing or trial at the time that the witness is set to testify. But give thought, though, ahead of time, including when you're mapping out your deposition plan as to how you're going to prove the witness's location or death. That's not something you should ever wait to do at the last minute. If your trial judges, state and federal, are like the ones I practice in front of, you know that once they seat the jury, they want the lawyers presenting the case promptly and without any undue pauses or delays. You're going to have problems with your trial judge. If you walk into the courtroom and say that you got caught off guard pertaining to a witness's unavailability and you need a break for a few hours or overnight to come up with proof of the unavailability or to assemble deposition designations, odds are good in that situation that that's not going to happen and that you're going to lose the ability to present the witness. And that seems to have been the situation in the Forbes case I talked about earlier. Plaintiff's counsel in that case struggled at the last minute to put together proof of unavailability and just could not get it together, at least in the judge's eyes. So the deposition was not allowed and the case went to trial without the deposition or live testimony of what the plaintiffs evidently thought was a key witness and the plaintiffs lost. All right, here's another key point. Note that in subsection E of Rule 32A4, that's the exceptional circumstances argument, that you've got to present that argument on motion 
and notice, motion and notice. That's the only one of the five grounds that requires a motion and notice of the intent to present it. So it's not likely to be a ground that you're going to be able to argue on the fly. You're going to have to think about that one. And remember that if your jurisdiction requires conferral, when motions are being filed, you've got to properly confer and meet your local rule obligations on motion practice. Again, the judge in the Forbes case uh, criticized plaintiff's counsel, among other things, for failing to properly confer as required as part of filing the motion and seeking the relief. Next point, remember, once again, to look at Rule 804 of the Federal Rules of Evidence. That can provide additional or independent support for the admission of testimony. Now, Rule 32A4 is generally viewed as a little more permissive in allowing testimony than Rule of Evidence 804, but you've got both of them at your disposal. Whatever rule you rely on, it's important and critical that you be able to show reasonable diligence in every respect in getting the witness to appear live first or remotely by video if they can't appear in person. Next practice tip. If you discover after deposing a witness that the witness is going to be unavailable to appear or testify and your discovery deposition is not what you would want it to be to present to the jury or a judge if it's a bench trial, immediately ask the court to allow you to redepose the witness specifically as a trial examination. That way you're not necessarily stuck with having to use a deposition taken purely for discovery purposes that includes all kinds of meandering questions, objections, and answers. Judges sometimes will allow what they refer to as a second trial deposition because it really benefits everyone. The examination's tighter, there are fewer disruptions and stray comments, sometimes fewer objections. That benefits the jury as well. And that's what a corporate plaintiff did in a case out of the Southern District of New York. That's the Amtrust North American case. There, the corporate plaintiff anticipated that three former employees would not voluntarily comply with the subpoena, even if served. So in this particular case, the uh, corporate plaintiff quickly filed papers with the court saying, look, we are going to undertake reasonable efforts to get these witnesses to appear in person. Haven't done it yet, but we're going to, but we also want to let the court know of the situation because we have reason to believe that they're not going to honor subpoenas, even if served. So we respectfully ask the court to allow us to use their deposition testimony in the event we can't get these folks to show up. Really a very smart move to have that plan in place and to be ready to play the video or read the designations without skipping a beat. So lots of advanced planning there, really a great uh, deposition strategy. All right, what else? If you suspect a witness, a deponent is going to be unavailable and you're okay with it. In other words, you're okay letting the jury hear their deposition testimony, then consider establishing their upcoming availability as part of your deposition examination. As appropriate, ask about their health, their travel plans, their employment plans, their retirement plans, the disruption that appearing for trial would cause. That deposition testimony will be supremely useful if later you do need to establish unavailability over objection. And finally, be sure that the court in your case, if it allows deposition testimony to be read, be sure that the court reads an instruction to the jury that deposition testimony carries the same weight as if the witnesses were appearing live. I've included a sample federal pattern jury instruction in the show notes uh, for your review and consideration. All right, let's flip the coin. What if you're on the other side where you don't want any depositions read, you want the witnesses to appear live? Here are some things you can do. First, be on lookout for anything relating to any deponent 
that suggests unavailability at the time of trial. And then build that into your deposition and trial plans. Who are the witnesses in this case? Who might slip away from us such that their deposition might be used in lieu of live testimony? Next pointer, don't rely on adversaries to produce anyone that you can subpoena. Obviously, agreement to have an opponent produce somebody will save you some money on the cost of serving a subpoena and on the mileage check. But you see from the Phoenix Technologies case that an opponent's promise or plan to have someone available for you doesn't count a whole lot under the rules. Next point, if in depositions you hear your adversary asking questions that appear to be laying the foundation for an unavailability argument later, ask your own questions in the deposition to undermine that line of examination. Another practice pointer, you want to give thought to whether there are any witnesses who have been deposed whose absence would actually and significantly benefit your adversary. In other words, is the opponent putting together their case based on the presumption that certain people will not be allowed to testify live or cannot testify live, which in turn means that you're not going to be able to ask any additional questions in front of the judge or jury. Be sensitive to the possibility that you might get hit with a surprise request for the use of deposition testimony instead of a live appearance just before trial. That's the Hopman case, H-O-P-M-A-N case, in the show notes. Now, in that particular situation, there was apparently a continuance of the original trial date, and one of the parties was concerned, the plaintiff was concerned, that the defense would do something during the period of continuance to improve its trial position. And at least in the plaintiff's eyes, it appeared from the opinion, the defense did exactly that. Just a few days before the start of the trial, the defense filed papers saying that one of the key witnesses was now unavailable and that the defense wanted to play the deposition testimony instead. So that left uh, the plaintiff without a live witness and forced the plaintiff in that situation to scramble to assemble enough chunks out of the deposition to present something coherent to the jury on its own. So it's important to look ahead and give some thought about that. Which deposition went well enough for your opponent that it might actually benefit the opponent for the witness to be unavailable at the time of trial such that it can use the deposition testimony? If there are witnesses that fall into that category and if those witnesses can be subpoenaed, hit them early with your trial subpoenas. Don't wait for the trial date to roll around. Don't wait for the witnesses to go on vacation, retire, relocate. Next pointer, if you are opposing the use of depositions or anticipate doing so, you need to carefully evaluate what the proponent is saying in its papers about the grounds for allowing the deposition testimony and the basis for the witnesses alleged unavailability. They may not articulate the correct basis. So you've got to analyze every argument that they make through the lens of Rule 32 and Rule 804. Is the proof of unavailability, regardless of the ground cited, is it competent evidence? If the witness can't attend in person, why can't they testify remotely? That's the Martinez case in the show notes. Key witness was scheduled to give birth three days before the start of the trial. The judge said, well, that rules out the attendance in person, but doesn't seem to impact remote testimony. Motion to use the deposition denied. Here's another pointer. If you're seeking to oppose the use of deposition testimony in lieu of live, attack the reasonableness of the efforts to procure the witness. Exactly what did your opponent do to try to get the witness to show up? What diligence has been shown? 
Next pointer, remember that the rulings on this lie within the sound discretion of your trial judge. So your judge will have lots of leeway to rule in your favor if you can present a compelling case that unavailability has not been proven. Next pointer, attack the underlying testimony in the deposition as inadmissible, whether the witness is available or not. Federal Rule of Evidence 602 and likely your state analog requires personal knowledge by the witness before their testimony can be admitted. Federal Rule of Evidence 402 requires the exclusion of irrelevant evidence. Rule 403 requires exclusion of evidence that is a waste of time or duplicative. So don't just fight the fight on the issue of unavailability. If that's what's coming at you, attack the content of the deposition itself. All right, that's a wrap for today. Thank you as always for listening. If you ever have any questions or comments, you can email the staff at depositionpodcast at jimgardylaw.com. Have a great day and we'll talk again soon.